I had to read the Bible a lot when I was a kid. Every day is like a thousand years to God. God made the world in six days, so he did seventh day to rest. That's 7,000 years. So theoretically, if God got up this morning and at 2.30 decided to end the world, then we're just at noon, you know? We're not even at nighttime. And believe me, God is uh, not kind enough to end the world in one day. So live it up, suckers. From Love and Radio, you're listening to The Secrets Hotline at 929Secrets. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Hey, Nick. When I was a little girl, I was a weird kid. I didn't really have, like, a lot of friends. And it's not like I wanted to have a lot of friends. It was just because I kind of lived in my own world. I was really independent and did my own thing and made stuff out of sticks and rocks. I grew up in the country, like the middle of New Jersey. All I did was spend time outside, turning over rocks and playing in the brook and climbing trees, building forts and um, just looking at things and like being completely awed by nature, by everything around me. A cocoon, a piece of moss, it was like these entire worlds and I was like completely lost in them. So it was never boring. And then I think when I was about nine or 10, I saw the movie Soylent Green. What is the secret of Soylent Green? New York City in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore, nothing works, but the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police. What they need most is Soylent Green. Humans had completely destroyed the natural world. They depleted all the soils. It was just a nasty place to live. The majority of the people had no food and they were starving, so the government had to feed them. And they would drive these carts full of these square cracker-like things that people got like a little bucket full or a handful. And this is how they fed the people. And they were called Soylent Green. If you didn't want to live in this world anymore and you were tired of being hungry, um, or God forbid you remembered what the world used to look like before it was destroyed, and you decided you didn't want to live anymore, you could go to these centers where you could end your life. Music? Classical. Uh, light classical. <laughs> I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And so you would go into this planetarium-like thing, and you'd lie on a table, and then you could choose whatever it is that you want to project on this, like, IMAX theater all around you and listen to your favorite music. Sign here, please, Mr. Roth. You drink some sort of concoction, and then you kind of slowly die while you see probably the most glorious thing you've ever seen. If you see it, My little 10-year-old brain, I was like, wow, that's like a really nice way to die. And then at the end of the film, they follow all these bodies being put in trucks and taken to an industrial center. And they come out in the end as these soylent green squares. The big shocker was that, yeah, the government was feeding the poor people dead people. I didn't have a problem with people eating dead people. And I didn't have a problem with the humane euthanasia part either. I was traumatized that people destroyed the natural world. 
I mean, I was in this horrible place that I don't even know how long it lasted. It's probably never, ever really gone away. So I guess what I was just wanted to say was that I just kind of depressed about it all because I can't imagine that people are going to pull themselves out of this. I mean, like all the people who are running everything with all the money, they make all the decisions. And I don't know how you're going to stop the greed until there's nothing left. I've been going to the gym because I got diagnosed with pre-diabetes about six months ago. I'm going to the gym and I'm, I have this goal of not getting diabetes. But as I do exercise more and I'm starting to like get muscles and stuff, I am like now increasingly motivated by this idea that if we end up in some kind of like Mad Max climate apocalypse world, that uh, it would be pretty useful to be uh, swole. I'm calling from Australia. We've had three years of cold, wet summers. I mean, cold as in it just gets to like 35 degrees centigrade, or not up to 50. And that means that it's really lush and green. <laughs> I just saw the peacock fly down from the tree. <laughs> That's Richard. Hey, Richard. Right now, we've just had the hottest month on record. It's starting to just get really hot again. And all that green is going to dry out. And it's so nice to feel the sun again. But there's a nagging anxiety there because we haven't really had a decent fire season in a few years. And I think it's going to be a doozy. I guess my secret is... And, like, I just want to preface this by saying, like, I'm not generally, like, a misanthropic human being. I like people. (laughs) But um, I've grown up in this area and it's kind of a country area since I was a kid it's just been growing and growing like the little village here is going to be a city soon <laughs> and I've seen the best farmland just turning into houses and there's a pretty kind of dark twisted part of me that wants a fire to come through and for all that urban sprawl that's been spreading out across this very particular bit of country to maybe not be here. And that's pretty dark. I've never told anyone that. But yeah, I guess it feels like where will it end if something doesn't keep us in check? Like, where will it end if we're not given a boundary? It just feels like we'll just pave over everything. And that's, ah, fuck, I mean, like, there's a housing crisis and they're building houses. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like there's any kind of stable moral ground in this situation. That's my secret. Thanks for, I guess, validating my... (laughs) 
<laughs> Moral uncertainty. <laughs> oh dear. I don't want anyone to get hurt or anything, but like I wish those fires and the storms would be even crazier. Sometimes when I get really depressed about it, I I know this is kind of morbid, but I like to fascinate about what the world is like when it doesn't have people in it anymore. Like if they all suddenly drop dead from a virus, like uh, the Stephen King novel, The Stand, it's just really amazing when nature just comes back and takes it back. Hey, Nick, you sexy guy. When I was a child, climate change was framed as this very solvable problem and the human spirit could overcome if only we were to recycle and uh, band together and really put our minds to it and invest in renewables and reduce our waste and it was this very personal practical problem that we could solve there was a lot of hope in that outlook and it was aspirational and then as the science came out and we realized just how profoundly fucked we were that aspirational element in the space of a generation is just completely lost. And the grief of that, I try not to take a nihilistic view, but it's very difficult not to sometimes, I think. Like these terrible circumstances feel so insurmountable day to day. It's really difficult to engage, I think, consistently, for me anyway. I believe we should still do as much as we can for as long as we can to stave it off and remain with these precious resources as long as possible and these animals in these beautiful environments. But I think ultimately, after thinking about it for a long time, I've been spat back out the other side. I think I'm just on the side of Mother Nature and whatever she deems right. And the wind's just picked up. (laughs) She'll figure it out. With or without us, you know? A lot of my friends are having children and my partner really, really wants to have kids. But something I haven't really talked to anyone about is I think my parents had the wrong choice having me in regards to climate change. It's just so anxiety-inducing and intense I'm only 27, but within my lifetime I've already seen a wide number of climate disasters. I've had people close to me directly affected by climate change. My partner's parents are literally homeless at the moment as a result of a climate-related disaster. I just really think that even though my parents love me so deeply, I wasn't intentional. They already had two kids, and I think it would have been the right choice not to have me. And now my partner desperately wants to have children. And I don't even know how to face the idea of bringing a child into this world now when I thought that having a child 27 years ago wasn't quite right. And I know there's always hope. And there's also the fact that we need good people having good children. But I just don't know about the ethics of making a decision like that for a being that has no consent and you creating their existence and bringing them into a world that is largely ruled by intense greed and intense selfishness. I think that my friends that are having kids are out of their minds, not thinking logically about the situation. I 
feel bad saying this, but I feel like um, my friends that are having children are really naive about human nature. I am pretty sure I understand that when we get to a point where things get really gnarly with survival and we have trouble growing food or there's real survival issues happening, people are going to get fucking crazy. And I think the world is going to become pretty much a war zone, among other things. And I don't think people get that. I tend to understand a little bit about the human condition. I grew up in a family of organized crime. I grew up poor. I know when people need to survive, they will do anything to survive. I don't know if it'll happen in our lifetimes, but if we're having kids, I'm pretty darn sure it's going to happen in their lifetimes. I don't want to do that to anyone. I remember a few years ago when my first kid was born, I was pushing her in a stroller around the neighborhood, and uh, one of my neighbors made a comment like, oh, you, you're deciding to have kids, given everything you know about the future? And I also have a few friends who have elected not to have kids because they're worried about the climate. Everyone needs to make their own decision for themselves, of course. I totally get people's anxiety but I wish people had like a little bit more perspective. I spend a lot of time reading history. I'm just, I'm really fascinated by history. And when you do that, I think it really becomes clear how much horrible stuff people have endured. Look, things will decline at some point. I don't know when, but my kids, we're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but my kids, have a better quality of life than 99.9% .9 of the billions and billions of human beings who have ever existed. Maybe that will all go up in flames like overnight in the style of the day after tomorrow or whatever, but I don't see significant evidence for that. My personal view is it's gonna be more like interstellar where first you have major league baseball teams playing in front of small crowds who are eating popcorn instead of hot dogs, and it stretches out over years. I don't know, I don't know what the future holds. And I would distrust anyone who says that they know for sure what's going to happen. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to have children because of the climate. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I guess, but to me, I see it more the other way. I'm like, oh, now you really want children. You know, it's like back in, you know, pre-industrial times, it's like, oh, you would have to have children to work the fields or whatever. I'm like, now, thinking about what the landscape is going to look like, what the literal landscape is going to look like when I'm elderly, it's like, shit's going to be fucked. Like, and I, you know, the, no social security for sure, but no, any, you know, it's like a built-in retirement plan. And I'm sorry, it's selfish, but it's time to start pumping out your Antifa super soldier security force for when you're old. Because, you know, all your fucking stocks and bonds are not going to protect you from the fucking marauders that are coming. But, you know, you have four to eight kids and you 
train them, fucking load them up on creatine, and uh, then you got a gang, and then you can survive. I hear people kind of going, oh, I'm not going to have kids now, I'm not going to have kids now. And I, like, I've been through all of that, and I've, I've kind of thought about all of that, and I just, I can't predict anything, and I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I've just got to try to live the best way I can, um, but I don't think it's up to the normal person. I was talking to a friend, and I was like, wait, if people who have all of the money in the world try to do something about what we're doing to our planet, is it reversible? Could we stop climate change and fix everything? And she was like, yeah, like, duh. Like, yeah, you didn't know this. And I had to just like sit with my head in my hands for a while because I was like, I feel like the impression I got was that it was over, like we were doomed. We can't stop climate change, but billionaires could if they wanted to, but they don't because they're billionaires. I thought it was inevitable, and it turns out it's not. Anyway, have a good night, Nick. No matter what we do, there's this term structural immorality. It's like you either drop out and you completely stop using everything that's out there, or you have to partake in the system and somehow change it from the insides. It's just built in. You can't make the right choice. And no matter how good of a choice that you make, your choices are not enough to change things. I am sitting in my car outside of a house. I'm a solar consultant. I knock house doors. I evaluate them to see if they get enough sunlight. I have a whole pitch. I ask if they've thought about solar and tell them their house would be good for it. Then we do free assessments and we try to get them set up with solar panels on their house. It's a hard job. It's only commission-based. I don't get a wage. But I do that not only because the economy sucks and it's a job that has decent earning potential, but because I have this absolute gnawing, awful black hole inside of me about climate change. I'm 29, and I have believed in climate change since I heard of it back when Al Gore came out with what The Inconvenient Truth or whatever his movie was. I exert a decently high amount of energy every single day to just stay dissociated about climate change because if I let myself feel it, it consumes me and it takes me to a place that is very hard to come back from. And it's profound grief and fear. It's just horrific. All of the species that we are pushing off of existence because of our greed. This whole planet, we're destroying it just for fucking greed and money. Humans are fucking awful. Not like most people on an individual basis, but as a species. And often I feel like we deserve to not be here. But I have to stop because I'm going to cry now. (laughs) And I have to go run this solar appointment, but it's a black hole inside of me about it. It's so hard for me to talk about climate change in a real way with human beings. My secret is that I believe that we're not going to make it as a species. That's pretty clear. And I think that time is way sooner than we realize. I've been tracking climate change and climate issues since the early 90s. And having, like, 
these conversations where I'm like banging my head against the wall with other people. And, you know, I'm always getting these things that are kind of like, well, you know, every generation's had this idea that they're going to be extinguished for some reason or another, whether it's nuclear wars. But we have data. <laughs> we have plenty of data. And we have anecdotal data and we have experience. And this is something that I know in my fiber of my being to be true. I actually work as a therapist and I know why people can't look at this and don't want to. It's just too hard. It's like too big to fathom. So I don't fault people on the one hand, but I'm really desperate for like a group of people that are speaking the same language, that realize the same things. You hear people talk about like, oh, well, you know, when I pay off my mortgage in 30 years and I'm like, what? And they're like, well, when I, you know, when I retire and I'll do this and my grandkid will do this, I'm like, are you kidding yourself? But here's the kicker. I don't think that that means that life isn't worth living or there's some like nihilistic, like, oh, fuck it. You know, we're, we're all going to die. So it doesn't matter kind of thing. I actually think the opposite. There's this quote that I don't know who it belongs to, but that says, if nothing at all matters, then the only thing that matters is what we choose. And I still think it's worth it to do the things that light you up, that feel good, that feel supportive to humanity. If I'm wrong, God, I hope I'm wrong. Great. And if I'm not, then we still went out doing the best thing we could. For anyone out there who is feeling a lot of, hmm, what do we say? Dread, despair, hopelessness, outrage, sadness, grief, anxiety about the climate crisis, how obviously bad it has been allowed to get, how much worse it looks like it shall get without all out action, and how unaligned we are currently. Yeah, that's all very rational and pretty normal to cycle through from time to time, a, a gang of really difficult feelings that can cloud us in a fatalistic place sometimes when thinking about the future. Problem is that this can really harm our mental health, right? It can really rip away any sense of hope for a regenerative future in which things are better. And it can take us away from finding viable pathways to becoming part of the available solutions that are underfoot. We have to be really mindful to not lean into these kinds of deterministic ideas that tell us, oh, you know, there's nothing to be done. The die is cast. Our meaningful actions that we try to take now won't actually produce the outcomes that we want because that's the too late disease, essentially, which is growing out there. And it's really dangerous because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if we buy into that on a deeper emotional, spiritual level. In the same stride, it really robs us of well-being and enjoyment of life. So we gotta help each other not fall into that crevice. Even if sometimes that feels authentic, it's okay to touch the pain of this moment and the turbulence of the climate crisis. Researchers and mental health professionals, clinicians have stood up to say, this bundle of distress, it's not a pathology, it's not a mental health disorder. What we're calling now climate anxiety often, which is, uh, a pretty limited term to describe the emotional valence that people report, but it's helpful to have some term to talk about anyway. Climate anxiety is not a mental disorder, right? It's a sign of care and compassion for all that's in harm's way. And it's what happens because of our connection to nature, to other people, to the more than human world. And we're seeing that our life support systems are being disrupted. So obviously that's gonna have a distressing effect on us. So we can actually be proud of feeling that connection and not being so defended from it out of some kind of self-preservation, self-denying, 
sticking our heads in the sand, what have you. But then the question is, how do we keep moving? How do we not get trapped with it? How do we actually find ways of being with the grief and outrage and sadness and anxiety in a curious way, in a way where we can befriend the feelings and wait until their insights appear so that we can learn from them. It's information, it's emotional information about what we care about most and what we want to see happen. And those insights then help navigate and propel us towards different behaviors and actions and ways of creating communities of care. These communities of care are absolutely necessary to forge resilience in the climate crisis, help each other out, increase our well-being and quality of life, and all of that is possible, but not when we're sitting in isolation with these feelings, feeling like, uh, you know, the world is ending or it's all on our shoulders alone or we're the only one who cares or all these narratives and stories that we can easily get trapped in. I like this quote that comes from researchers who wrote this beautiful short paper in The Lancet, this medical journal, where they conclude by saying something to the tune of, feelings of ecological anxiety and grief, although uncomfortable, may in fact be the crucible through which humanity must pass to harness the energy and conviction that are needed for the life-saving changes now required. That really says it all. It's like, yes, this is uncomfortable, but it might be a necessary passage through which we are moving in order to get real <laughs> about this crisis and what it demands of us and how we can throw our skills and competencies at it together, because community saves. Always, always, always doing this in community, never going it alone. I have a proclivity to doom scroll. And climate change is such a wonderful focus for that kind of neuroticism. <laughs> and of course, it got really bad during COVID. Then there was riots. Then there was like January 6th. It's just been a couple years of very intense doom scrolling to the point where I feel I reached such a peak with that that I could take it no further. It's almost like I went so far into the doom vortex, I came through the other side, if you will. And I was brought back there just a couple of weeks ago with the strange weather in California, in Nevada. There was like a hurricane off the West Coast. There were forest fires all across Canada. And I found myself back in that pattern of doom scrolling again. Um, just for the weekend, you know, I didn't go too far into the abyss. I've already seen it. I know what's there. I'm good. I'm good. And it just sort of made me reflect on how far I've come and why I don't really do that so compulsively anymore. And I was reminded of one of my favorite songs that I would have first heard in my late teens. It's Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is. I remember when I was a little girl and our house caught on fire. And it had such an effect on me at that age. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me in his arms. I try to listen to it every couple of years because as we go through these different decades and experiences in our lives, we keep seeing it from different angles and understanding it in different ways. And so I'd encourage anybody struggling with existential dread to have a listen. I said to myself, it is an existential banger. Is that all there is to a fire? For those who don't know, the chorus goes, Is that 
so much about that song and what it means to me now in 2023 is that climate change is pretty hard to ignore right now and it is scary and it is frightening but we all know how this life thing is going to end like we're, we're all going to die it could happen in five years time it could happen in 10 20 however many decades and yeah it could be because of climate change but it could also be a car accident an illness a disease so many reasons. We don't really know how it's going to end. It doesn't particularly matter. But yeah, what the fuck are you going to do right now? Just doom scroll about it? Like, nah. <laughs> nah, get out there. Have a drink. See your friends. Have fun. And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We take long walks down by the river. Just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes we were so very much in love and then one day he went away and i thought i'd die but i didn't and when i didn't i said to myself is that all there is to love is that all there is is that So there is my friend Then I know what you Must be saying to yourselves If that's the way she feels about it Why doesn't she just End it all Oh no, not me I'm not ready for that final disappointment Cause I know Just as well as I'm standing here Talking to you That when that final moment comes Breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze. That's it for the secrets. Special thanks to my friend Britt Ray, who I asked to share her thoughts in this episode. That's because Britt runs Generation Dread, which is a book and a collection of resources for climate action and resiliency. You can find it at gendread.substack.com. That link is also in the show notes. Of course, you can leave your own secret or response at secretshotline.org by calling 929secrets or recording something yourself and emailing it to contact at secretshotline.org. 
Halloween is coming up and I want to know what's something that scares you or something that used to scare you. It can be a secret fear or not, abstract or not, either way is fine. Again, you can send a message by visiting secretshotline.org or by calling 929-SECRETS. As always, if you change your mind for whatever reason, just call back within 24 hours and I'll make sure your call doesn't go into the podcast. And if you can, find a quiet place to record and don't use a speakerphone or hands-free device. The quality of the call is much better when you don't. This episode featured the music of Pulse Mandala and Distant Fires Burning, Strange Bird Sounds, and Interspecifics. Our end theme is by Stephen Jackson. Check the show notes for the full playlist. The Secrets Hotline is a labor of love and radio and made possible thanks to you. Your support makes this show possible, and I'm deeply grateful for it. Thank you. Please leave a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. I'm Nicholas Sardine Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Thanks for listening.